Welcome to episode 14 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Now today I'm really excited to welcome Hassan Bhatti. Now Hassan is an entrepreneur with experience in building deep tech companies in North America. He currently works as product BD at Snowflake, focusing on the healthcare and life sciences industry. Hassan is also an investment partner at the Community Fund, allocating capital at an early stage across community-driven companies. Prior to Snowflake, Hassan co-founded Crypto Numerics before being acquired by Snowflake in June of 2020. Before Crypto Numerics, Hassan was head of growth at Iris Automation, backed by the likes of Social Capital, Bessemer and GGV Capital. Hassan also spent time at Toronto's Creative Destruction Lab, investing in and supporting startups at the cutting edge of their respective fields, including AI and quantum computing. He also holds a bachelor's degree in physics and economics from the University of British Columbia. Well, Hassan, listen, I am excited to dive right in. So thanks for joining me today. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here, Alex. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Amazing. Now, Hassan, when I was preparing for this show, I found on your presentation at Tech Toronto back a few years in 2019 on the lessons you learned when working in deep tech. Now, I'm aware you grew up in Pakistan and moved to Canada in 2010. I guess my first question is, how has this ability to adapt to new environments helped you succeed? Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great question. So generally, I think that no matter if you're an individual or a business, or whatever you're trying to do, being able to adapt to new things and new scenarios is super key for your success. When I when I moved to Canada, I didn't really know anyone in in this country. I fortunately got in a scholarship to come study at University of British Columbia, and I think really fast I do to get good at building relationships across cultures uh, because there were so many international students uh, at our schools, really understanding different cultures and how people will go across them was, was a key kind of skill I had to learn. Secondly, I had to really kind of make decisions with limited information because it's a new kind of economy, new social uh, culture I was moving into. So I had to really like adapt my decision-making skills with limited information. Uh, and I think also being able to change decisions with new information, right? Like, especially when you're coming into a new culture, you know, you're learning things which may challenge your preconceived perspectives on a lot of things. So being able to do that was also something I, I, was, I was challenged from day one. Uh, and then and then lastly, just like not giving up and being persistent, right? Because there were a lot of failures when I, when I was in this new country as I was trying to navigate it. So I think all of those things have really helped me throughout my career as well, right? Like, when you're building a startup or you're trying to start a new company, being able to navigate the social hierarchy there, building relationships among folks there, you know, figuring out things with like limited information, changing decisions, just being persistent is super key for success. Yeah, I love that point on persistency, you know, keep on putting in the reps, get going and then get good. I think that's what it's all about. And you also mentioned on making decisions with limited information, Hassan, and I think that's such a critical skills for not just entrepreneurs so founders or, or or investors alike but for anyone really because everyone is struggling with some sort of information asymmetry gap no matter the field of 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 operating so how i guess have you hassan been able to 
overcome this or at least narrow this information gap, whether it be the content you consume um, or, or at least the relationships that you forge across cultures that you mentioned? Yeah, so, so, so I think like, you know, as you mentioned, right, like this limited information thing is a huge challenge no matter what you are doing or what you're trying to practice. My kind of approach always to kind of narrow the information gap has been that I have this concept of a personal board of directors. So I've tried to find experts in different areas which I'm interested in and as kind of things pop up, which I'm trying to figure out, I, I reach out to those individuals to get insights. That's that's one kind of you know funnel of my information. And the second is I've tried to build a content flywheel around areas of my interest. So I can like, you know, get expertise in an aggregated fashion from Twitter or like from other blogs and things like that. That's typically like how I try to narrow the information gap uh, when I'm trying to figure things out. Uh, but you can always never get it to 100%. So you just need to kind of make a call at some point uh, when you're trying to make decisions. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. Constructing this personal board of directors, right, where you essentially curate believable parties within your network and essentially take the the best information. Um, you already know it's high signal. It's already been filtered through them. So you're definitely closing that information gap, Hassan. I guess casting back to that first point on the, uh, on the talk you gave back in Tech Toronto, you raised a really great point during that presentation on emphasizing the solution over the technology with a given product. Why is emphasizing the solution so important in a world that is now flooded with features, Hassan? Yeah, no, I think that that's a great question. It's something I definitely learned over time. It was not something which came intuitively to me when I started off in the startup startup world. But what I've, what I've realized is at the end of the day, be it a consumer, be a large enterprise economy, an enterprise company like a Fortune 100 company, Primarily what they care about is what problem can you solve for them? And when they think about that problem, they're thinking about it like in you know, two key, key considerations. Is it going to reduce the costs for us to like do this business? Or are you going to increase the revenue? Uh, and you know, every kind of business decision primarily is kind of around these two levers is being made. So if you're trying to tell them all the features and, you know, how amazing your technology is, they don't really care about that. They will care about that once they know for a fact that, you know, you can help them solve their problem, either that's reducing costs, making their business more efficient, increasing the revenue. So that's why I really think, you know, emphasizing on the solution, understanding what actual problem you're solving is super key, and then using your technology nuances or technology advancements or technology uniqueness as a lever to kind of sell that story more aggressively. But if you're just trying to sell your technology story, your feature story, and by not really like focusing on what problem it's solving, no one will really care at the end of the day. Because uh, customers are not going to pay for science projects. They eventually want you know you to kind of solve a problem. And especially in deep tech, right? Like there are companies which will require years and years of research before they can even get to their solution. But even then, there's a solution in mind. There's like a big opportunity in mind. Quantum computing is a great example of that, right? Like a lot of quantum computing companies are working on this problem for like years and years, and they've not fully solved it, but there's an ambition. Like if they solve that, this quantum computing challenge, 
then the impact can be very meaningful. And that's fine, but there's there's a solution in mind. You know, the impact in mind is still there and that's what they're selling. So that's, I think, it's super key. Yeah, I know there's a great quote in copywriting where no one cares what you can do, but everyone cares what you can do for them. And I think that rings so true with building startups and creating solutions that ultimately solve the world's hardest problems, Hassan, especially within the remit of, of deep tech. What I want to do now is let's rewind the tape a little bit. I want to know, Hassan, how you first made your way into the world of startups and venture investing. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great question. So I actually started my career in, in management consulting, uh, and, but I quit four months in to join a startup. Uh, so, so one of my friends from college was building this uh, autonomous drone company and he was looking for a head of growth, head of business development. So I was helping him find that individual. And after a month or so, he just asked me, like, why don't I join him to do this role? It seems like I'm really excited about technology companies. I, I was helping him beforehand as well. I have a passion for BD and growth and product. I don't really, to be honest, didn't really have thought about joining startups as, as a pathway. And I was like set on this management consulting pathway. I'm going to go down this, work for two, three years, go to like HBS or like top business school. And, you know, that would be like the life. But I, when he made that offer, I started thinking about it, you know, like what does this new pathway look like? And I, and I think really which helped me kind of pull the trigger is this advice I got from one of my partners at the consulting firm kind of told me that, you know, a lot of people will overestimate the, the risks involved with taking, you know, crazy career decisions, but really underestimate the rewards. And when I kind of framed it in the context of this opportunity was that, hey, like the risk is I give up this amazing, you know, comfy job and the salary, which, which requires a lot of work as well. But if, uh, if we succeed in that startup, you know, this could be a massive opportunity where like one, the equity can be worth a lot, can open up a lot of different doors. So that framing really made me kind of quit consulting and just join this company. Uh, we had like, I think three, four months of funding, we go, but we got into YC uh, and the rest is, rest is history. If I had not done that, I would have not gone down the startup pathway. I would have not learned the Silicon Valley mindset. I would have not been able to build companies most probably that stayed in, in a consulting or maybe, maybe I would have, but you know, it just really put me down on a pathway, which I think opened up a lot of doors. So, uh, so it was awesome. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Hassan, where did that, passion then for deep tech stem from and i guess you know how was your experiences from iris to crypto numerics to then obviously being acquired by snowflake shaped this perspective yeah no uh so i'd always been really like when i was in school i was studying physics like i started off in engineering and then i kind of switched to physics and economics because i really wanted to understand how you know various fundamental systems in math, mathematics and physics like are done and like get a bit more philosophical as well and understand the under the hood science of different things you're doing in engineering and and i really thought that you know some of the biggest problems you face as society right like as i kind of did work in physics with like a lot of researchers would it require us commercializing technology from the lab and someone who can do that well and can really bring it out, can help people understand the solutions this technology can solve, can really win, to be honest, in this market. Because there were not a lot of people, and I was going through at least school, 
who could communicate well, can tell a great story, can also convince people to join them on their mission to build companies, raise raise capital, and then also commercialize technology. So I thought like, yeah, this unique skill set. So that's why I really got excited about deep tech because I'm like, I can tell a great story, I can do all these things, and I also have a passion for technology and research. So that's how my initial idea started. And then fortunately, Iris Automation was also this, this drone company was also uh, a deep tech company. And then that kind of got me meeting other founders and investors in that space so that, you know, the network fly, network fly wheel started working as well. So those are kind of the two reasons which I kind of got into the space. And, and, and I think you asked like how my experience has changed from CryptoMax to Snowflake. I think generally like the, the lesson I learned at CryptoMax was we were solving an amazing problem of privacy preserving machine learning, but still slightly early in the market. So like what that taught me was, you know, no matter how cool your tech is, how cool the problem you're solving, you really need to make sure that there are people who are willing to pay for it and that timing needs to match. And if the timing matches, you can build a massive company. The timing is off. Like you may have like an amazing solution and amazing tech, but if no one's willing to pay for it at that point in, in the time in the market, it won't work. So that's kind of like a key lesson I've learned. So now when I look at deep tech companies, I'm always thinking about is the market ready for the solution and people willing to pay for it? And then, then, then we should be building it. Yeah, you raise a really interesting point there on timing, Hassan. And I guess my question from that is, look, how early is too early? When there is this new cutting edge tech, you know, coming straight out from the Midwest, <laughs> you know, how, how can you really prove its efficacy when it's at such a nascent stage? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's super hard to do that, right? Like if you if you look at, Let's just take the example of quantum computing. We talked about it earlier as well. Uh, you know, the first company which really tried to tackle this problem was D-Wave based in Canada. And since then, a lot of other companies have popped up and, you know, they've, they've been significantly more successful to some extent. But D-Wave really opened the doors for those companies to be built. But they were, they were early in the market from that perspective that, you know, they, they, they were the first movers. So, so I think like the challenge... And figuring this, you know, this this right market is super hard. Like, there's no one way of doing it. But my kind of approach now, looking at problems, is that you, you should be starting with talking to the entities or personas you think would benefit the most with whatever you want to build. And and then that's a very cliche thing, you know. Like a lot of people say that, but it's 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 surprising how many founders don't do it. But you should be spending as much time as possible talking to the personas and, you know, the groups who are going to benefit from the technology you, you envision to, like, bring to market. And then you should also, the second thing you should do is you should not bias your mind by, hey, this is a technology and I'm going to build something around that technology. But instead, try to look for, again, the solution. Because there are sometimes easier ways to solve the problem and the technology may not even be required. So just making sure you're not biased in that way as you kind of talk to these individuals and just make sure you look at it as an open mind. I think if you do these two things, you most probably can get a sense of is the market ready for this not, or is this even the best technology to like bring to market to solve that problem? Yeah, I'm totally with you there, especially on the biases, Hassan. I know it's all too easily influenced from external opinions, uh, mainstream media, yeah, and I will, I'll, to I'll, and I will say, your perception of reality. Yeah, and I, and I will say that, especially if you're a technologist, right, like you, you love your technology so much that sometimes it's hard to 
uh, be a bit unbiased on it. And, and that's the same thing with the founder, right? Like you love your idea so much that it's hard sometimes to look at other perspectives. And sometimes that's good, because you need to have significant optimism as a founder to build a company and really believe like, you know, everyone in the market is wrong. That's how you build big things. Sometimes the market is right. So you really also need to be listening to that as well. Yeah, I think it's almost romanticized, right, with a founder interacting with their technology and your perspective then soon gets jaded. That's why I think it's so important to have a co-founder who at least has a differing perspective to that of yours. You want someone, look, if, if, if two people have the same opinion, Hassan, then look, one of them one of them's unnecessary, right? You you challenge you uh, and challenge your ideas. Um, and I, I know we were chatting about this on an earlier episode with Linda Leanne, the co-founder of Common Room, another great community platform. So I think it's really, really important to pay attention to that. I guess coming from these experiences, Hassan, what are some of the challenges you're seeing ahead within deep tech? Oh, one thing I will add to the previous just comment Alex, you made of the second co-founder, and I think Snowflake is actually a great example of that. You know, the Snowflake founders were some of the best database individuals in the world who had really figured out the technology around how there should be the first cloud native database be built. And Sutter Hill Ventures and Mike Spicer kind of came around them to build a team and a commercial business and an approach. And that partnership really led to Snowflake becoming a massive business. You know, and in its first one or two years, Snowflake, Snowflake was just spending time talking to a very limited amount of customers to perfect the product. They were not trying to go out there and just like, you know, build a massive business with ARR. Like they were very focused on making sure they were solving the right problem. And once they found that per market fit and like the right problem, then they really accelerated. So I think I think that's that's really key. You know, like that that combination of like the different types of founders really helps you, you succeed. Uh, coming coming to your second question, like you know the challenges ahead for deep tech. Uh, I think like the macroeconomic environment obviously has changed significantly this year. Uh, unclear, like you know when it when it reverses, but. Generally, funding is becoming hard. You know, what used to be metrics for a Series B round is coming close to a Series A round now. Seed rounds are getting compressed as well. Series A rounds are getting challenging. You know, you really need a better business at the fundamental level to raise. And as a deep tech founder, you know, it is a challenging round, right? Like you're going after moonshot ideas which are not really connected to ARR in your year two of your business or year three. It's, it's kind of, in some cases, it's like if you win in this, this solving this problem, you will have a monopolistic business. And if you kind of fail, just go home. And so it really becomes a lot of VCs may not be willing to fund long-term opportunities which is just to, to me, to me, is kind of counterintuitive because, you know, VCs are in the business of long-term building long-term things. So they should be still funding it. So the deep tech founder, I think you really need to like now get into the fact of like connecting that story, right? Like if you're able to succeed, what the impact would be, what the solution at the end case will look like, talk to your initial personas and customers who, if you, if you're able to build what you're building, will will buy that. And connect that story and you know present that to your investors and i think you still will be able to get money 
just will be a bit more challenging than before. Yeah, I'm definitely with you there, Son. We are seeing these multiples compress um, the inclusion of down rounds now, so things are becoming <laughs> definitely a little bit tighter. So you've uh, got to be got to be watching your back and at least raising prudent capital at least. Um, going back to your first company. Hassan, Iris Automation. You know, it, you, you spent some time there. I guess, what lessons did you pull from that experience to ultimately then pivoting and becoming a co-founder yourself? Yeah, no, I think uh, that was a great experience for me. You know, that was, that was the first opportunity I got to do fundraising. And I think we pitched, this is after YC, I think we pitched like around 120, 10 or 120 investors and around 10 or 11 said yes to us uh, to raise a $1.5 million round, which, which now just seems crazy. But at that point, you know, to be honest, felt normal, but that, that was just like persistence, right? Like there were so many no's I heard uh, while raising with, with the co-founder and the CEO of the company. Uh, but, you know, we just didn't give up and we were able to raise the round and just like kept building. So I think that was like one big lesson I learned that sometimes things may not go your order. Like there are other YC companies raising, you know, the, this much money after 20 meetings. So you, you just got to be persistent uh, and, you know, things may not be working as that might be working for other folks. So that, that's one. I think the second thing was that it is super key to finding, you know, your initial two, three customers who are willing to be your core design partners. Uh, that allows you to really optimize and build the right product as your first beta or alpha, whatever you want to call it. So it's really key to find, you know, those two to three core design partners and your customers are willing to kind of work with you, collaborate with you. The third thing I learned was that, you know, we were in SF, but I also realized that, you know, the valley is not really like a place. It's more like a vibe and it's a mindset. So if you can practice that mindset wherever you are, and then you can succeed. But generally, the reason why the Valley works so well is that everyone has that mindset there. People are willing to open up, share experiences with you, connect you to other individuals who may be able to help you, connect you to investors. Everyone is like just, just in the mindset of like, you know, like, hey, what do you do? Like, we can help you or not. Like, you know, people are willing to collaborate. They push each other. You're seeing all these amazing companies build around you. It's just a mindset of like trying to be excellent and helping others on their journey. So I think as long as you can practice that mindset wherever you are and find people who are practicing that mindset, I think you can succeed. Uh, yeah, those are, I think, like some lessons that we really learned while, 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 at the, while at this company. A mindset of excellence. Well, that's definitely something I can get behind, Hassan. But I think your, your first point there, uh, it really ties back to our earlier conversation on persistency, right? Just staying in the game, putting in the reps, you know, meeting, pitching 120 investors, 11 saying, yes, I think it... I think the numbers speak for themselves. And coming from that, Hassan, look, you've sat at both sides of the table, right? Being an investor and a founder. How has your experiences on each side helped shape your ability to locate new incredible founders? Yeah, I think like, uh, you know, once once you're investing, uh, the appreciation of like how challenging it is for the founder to raise, like, you know, becomes even more clear. Uh, and, and I think as, as a, as a founder myself, what I, I, I think now I started realizing is that like, I start I really care about the journey the individual has taken from wherever they were 
to building the company. Because I think that that tells you so much about that individual. Like, can they kind of go through tough times, like you know, up, how they have performed in like difficult moments before? Uh, because no, not everyone's journey is the same. You know, someone might be starting completely different in a different environment and have a lot of like uh, resources, while someone may be starting in a completely different environment with no resources. So, like understanding that, I think is super key. I uh, did definitely do not appreciate it. You know, as as a founder, I thought like every investor will care about it, but like they don't. But like now, as an investor, I do really care about that. And I think the second thing is just you know understanding why are folks solving this problem. The real founders who really care about the thing they're working on, like you can just tell like there's this passion and there's like a certain way they explain and converse and communicate their their thesis. But that energy is just 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 present when they're communicating to you, right? Like, and and you can just sense it. And I think being a founder myself, I I can sense that as well. And that really helps me figure out, you know, who's really in, in this for solving this problem. Because you know, sure, like you know, building a company is also about making money and all of those things. But that's a byproduct. If you're building a great company, you you will sell it for like an amazing price, or you will IPO, and all of these things may happen. But if you're in building a company for just making money, they're just way better risk uh, adjusted pathways than just building companies. So I think understanding that is super key. Uh, and I think the third thing, which, which is really important for me is, you know, traction. So, so now like the world we live in, a lot of things you can just get initial traction. That to be honest, spending any money. And uh, founders can also do that, right? Like that, that traction could just be like, yeah, I spoke to 50 customers and this is my analysis of the market or the traction could be, yeah, I launched my app, like an MVP, I got like X amount of downloads, whatever that is, just getting some signal that they're like, you know, they have tested some things in the market, I think is super critical. But but I think just, just the ability for me, like to be a founder, an active founder, uh, really helps me being a better investor, right? Because I can empathize, like I can have the empathy for these founders, like, you know, which which I think is super key because it's, it's very hard to build a company. So, so I really appreciate every founder who's pitching me and like, you know, it's trying to build something. It definitely is hard to set up and start and gain traction when building a company has started. And there's definitely this dichotomy at an early stage where the founder is spinning many plates, right? So I guess coming from that, Hassan, and sort of a little bit more forward-looking, how should a founder approach an exit at such an early stage? Yeah, so I, I can show you an example. Like, you know, CryptoMax, we ended up exiting to Snowflake. Uh, and uh, the, the key thing for us was you build, like, you're building a very useful product, like a privacy-preserving machine learning product, which in essence meant that folks can use their sensitive data for data analytics without kind of compromising on privacy. But we were slightly early for the market, like the same point I said, right? Initially, uh, that we had not spoken to enough customers to know like, hey, the timing was right. So we were slightly early for the market. And when we realized that, and and luckily for us, we had like some amazing co-founders, very experienced operators who were on our board and our investor base who were able to guide us through those things as well. Like once we realized like, like, Hey, we were slightly early in the market and we would need to partner with someone who can either give us the opportunity to, you know, get the timing right or like pivot or like, you know, 
have a home for this company which can leverage this technology because of like what they've done in the past. And once we realized that, you know, we, we spoke to a lot of different companies and Snowflake became clear because they had a pathway for doing data sharing, privacy first, data sharing, and all of those things. So like the product widgets aligned a lot. And generally, I think like the key lesson I learned from this acquisition process is when you're early stage, like, you know, around CJ seed stage to get someone, your company acquired, like the best thing to do is like understand other large companies or your competitors or potential partners, product roadmaps and see what the product roadmaps are all about. And if you fit into the product roadmap, you could, you could kind of find a good acquiring uh, company. And that's what we did. Like, you know, Snowflake's product roadmap aligned with what we were trying to do. And we had a good home there. And that's, that's what ended up happening. Yeah, I love that point about compatibility, right? Forward looking with your competitors, your potential acquirers, and seeing how you can slot into that narrative. So that's a, yeah, very, very valuable point there, Hassan. I know we touched on it previously with the compression of multiples and the reemergence of down routes and so forth. Is this something that worries you with seats at both sides of the table? And I'd love to hear your take on the current fundraising climate, Hassan. Yeah, so uh, for sure, Alex. Oh, one one thing I will add on the previous question is that might maybe a bit counterintuitive, but I think as a founder, you should definitely be talking to the CEOs and other co-founders of your competitors, who you may think of as like potential partners or even competitors, because you know, like those relationships can at any point change into this acquisition conversation. So building those relationships is super key. So don't try to like you know completely shut down with other founders or other companies who you may think of as competitors because like, Hey, they're competing for the same, same buck as, as you are. I, th- I think that's that, 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 that relationship would be key in these early stage conversa- exit conversations as well. I think like from a fundraising climate, obviously I, th- I think it's definitely tough, right? Like a lot of founders uh, have built in a, in a market where capital was cheap, was easy to, easy to get. You know, economics was not really like the key thing they were focusing on. Growth at all costs was was uh, the focus. It's definitely changed now. Uh, but I think if you are still building a great company, solving a real problem uh, with, for your customers, and you have traction, you have results, and you can signify like, hey, this is a real problem you're solving. I think I think you'll be fine, to be honest. Uh, and and this climate will change in due time. So you most probably have a great opportunity of building a much more efficient business, a much more effective business. And when the market changes, then those uh, efficiencies and effectiveness will get value at a higher multiple from what it is today. Definitely the multiples have changed. You know, I, I think I've chatted with some founders who are saying before you could have raised a Series B or a Series A almost at 50 to 100x of your revenue. And now it's coming down to like somewhere between the 5 to 25x uh, variable. Uh, so definitely, you know, the markets are tougher, but that just means like the best companies will survive. Uh, and, uh, the others will have a hard time, uh, kind of continuing the business. Definitely. I think if you can signal that it is a real problem that you're solving, then look, people invest in people. And as long as you're, uh, beating up the right tree, then, uh, you know, people, people will be willing to back you. Um, coming from this, Hassan, I'd love to hear your greatest lesson that you've learned from your involvement within startups and also your investing career so far. 
Oh, Dan, that's a, that's a hard question. Uh, can I can I talk about two two things? Because I think they kind of are in combination, but slightly different as well. Feel free, shoot us on. Yeah, so so I think like the first thing is you really want to pick a market when you're building a company where the tailwinds are in your favor. You know, it's already really tough building a company by itself. Like that, that by itself is such a difficult thing to do. And if you pick a market which, uh, you know, the tailwinds are not in your favor, then you will have a very hard time. It's, it's significantly hard battling upstream than downstream. So, you know, try to pick a market which aligns with your competitive advantage or what you know, or like, you know, what where you see like an opportunity. And sometimes that opportunity may not, idly should not be super obvious. If it's already super obvious, then, you know, the timing may be off. And, and a good kind of example, someone told me of seeing when something is obvious or not is if McKinsey has written a report about the industry, there are most probably several billion dollar competitors already in that place. And it's an un- it's not no longer an unobvious opportunity. So I think that's that's one thing. And I think the second thing is that, you know, whatever journey you're on, when you're, when you're going on a journey of building a company, your people are key. Your co-founders, your early hires are super important. So making sure you get the right people on your bus are is super critical for success. And, you know, no matter if you have the tailwinds in your favor, you're building a great opportunity, your customers, if, you're, if you don't have the right team in, in-house, you will not be able to succeed. So I think those are kind of the two biggest lessons I've learned uh, over the past few years. Making sure you have the right people on your bus, Hassan, that's a really, really valuable point. And I think it resonates with what we were chatting about earlier with forming this personal board of directors, right? So benefiting not only your investing or startup life, but also your own personal life, right? And making these better informed decisions. What advice then would you have four founders that actually want to start a venture in this economic climate? Yeah, I, th- I think definitely be much more careful about how you're spending your dollars you've raised. So, you know, you're not getting, you're not burning insane amount and try to be efficient. Use the benefit of like a remote work culture to your advantage, like hire globally and uh, benefit from it, but also have core places where some of your team is spending that time so you can kind of build that relationship with each other as well. Uh, I think definitely pick ideas which are unobvious today because then you, I think, will have a great, better chance of winning. Uh, and then and then lastly, I think the, the key thing is that, you know, it's not like the business, business is going to complete end. People are still going to be buying products. Companies are going to be still buying products. And all of those things are still going to continue. It may not happen at insane scale people aren't going to throw money at you now so if you're still really solving a true problem a fundamentally a fundamental problem for a business or for a consumer you'll still be willing to pay uh in in this even tough in high inflation market like it's not like things are completely going to shut down uh ever yeah i agree the highs are always higher the next time around Hassan. but i know it's hard to see when when inflation's rampant and rates are rising and everyone can get a little bit um, caught up so to speak now i know you put a great thread on twitter back in september last year where 
you know, at 27, you were pretty burnt out, yet at 29, you were in the best shape of your life. I'm sure you still are, Hassan. <laughs> but what habits and tactics did you employ to really turn this around? Yeah, no, I think, like, definitely, uh, I, I'm definitely burnt out after uh, being in startups for a while and just, like, going pretty aggressively at, at full steam for a few years, and, and that takes your, that takes a toll. Uh, startup life feels super compressed. So, you know, 10 years in a normal life, three years for startup life may all, almost be equal. Uh, I think a few things which I which I changed up, which would really work for me, and, 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 and they seem, to be honest, like a lot of your listeners would seem pretty normal, but I think as a startup founder, you definitely forget those things because you, you're so consumed by your company and you really want it to succeed. You, you have investor capital. So people have believed in you. They've given you money. They trusted you. Individuals have kind of trusted their careers at your company by leaving high-paying jobs. So you really just want to succeed. You just don't want people, you don't want to let the folks down. So sometimes, you know, you're always just trying to work and trying to find solutions to problems. And uh, in, in that kind of like midst, it's sometimes hard to take a step back and see like, hey, if you're not in, if you're not in your best shape, you're not thinking properly, you're, you're meant, your mind is not at peace, you're not resting, you won't be able to make great effective decisions. So things I started changing was, one, definitely sleeping better. Uh, trying to get seven plus hours of sleep, I think that just has a huge, huge difference in how you interact with your team members, your customers, how you like process data uh, information. I think the second thing is that, you know, as, as a founder, you really need to keep, or even as an individual, you need to keep your energy levels idly constant. Uh, so, you know, eating well, not a lot of sugar. I, I started like, you know, cutting a lot of sugar out of my diet, which which really significantly helped. Uh, the third thing was just working out, which, you know, just enabled me to overall, like, you know, get some time out of work as well, but also like improve my, my body. And then, and then, and then this other thing, which I, which I think like, which, which helped me a lot, even just thinking well and just processing different information, which is like just long walks by myself, not listening to a podcast, not listening to music, just like walking by myself, I think was a huge unlock. I found it a great way to kind of, you know, figure things out in my head, process things and process information. Uh, and, then, and then lastly, I, I think, which is super key, as a, as a founder uh, or as an A-plus performing individual in a high, you know, in, in any career, you, you have limited time, right? And sometimes you're not able to like maintain relationships just because you're so busy with what you're trying to do. But the, so the key is whatever relationships you are able to keep you should keep as many as possible because, you know, good relationships at the end of the day are like what life is all about. Uh, make sure those relationships are healthy and those healthy relationships will just like provide you a lot of energy when you spend time with those folks. So I think, I think these are some of the things that changed, which have really helped me uh, on my journey now. Yeah. You mentioned going for long walks on yourself without any distractions, no phone, no other stimulus other than nature. And I can definitely get behind that, Hassan. I like to call it breathing room, right? You give yourself this breathing room, go by yourself. And I think the more the more you do that, the more creative you'll be because it's often than not the best ideas we have come to us when we're in the shower. And I think, you know, for, for a lot of people, that's the only time where they really stop and switch off and 
give themselves some some of that breathing room so if you can prioritize that and go for a long walk then you can often find that you get inspired at these inopportune moments i guess coming from that hassan what does your perfect day look like so a perfect day i think like a, a perfect day definitely is when i actually don't have anything scheduled in my calendar and there's no meeting bugging me in the day. So I think that really allows, at least for me, to actually do deep work and really think about my priorities. And I think like your schedule is kind of full or, you know, like you have a lot of things booked. Uh, sometimes you get, you have to like help other people with their fires and, you know, that may take take time away from what you may want to focus on. So I think that, that to be honest, like feels like for me, like an ideal day. Uh, where I have less limited meetings or no meetings uh, so I can really get into the meat of things and, you know, uh, figure things out uh, is, is super, super important. Definitely. I find excessive meetings, you're often pulled in multiple directions, Asan, and it's hard to truly focus in and get some of that deep work done. Well, listen, I have a tradition on this podcast where at the end of the show, each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guest. Last week, we had Wes Ko, the co-founder of Maven, on. And their question to you, Hassan, is what's a spiky point of view you haven't shared publicly yet? Oh, yeah, that's, that's definitely like an interesting question. And uh, yeah, I guess like we're talking about like startups, fundraising, all of those things. Maybe I'll, I'll share a spiky perspective on on this area. I think when you like the advice you get as a founder is that hey, you should build relationships with investors, and that's super critical for the success of your rounds. And you should start kind of talking to investors, you know, like months and months in advance. I I don't think that's necessary. I don't think you need to build relationships with investors. Investors' jobs is to kind of like you know set up meetings with all the founders and just like know what's going on. So they will reach out to you and like you know want to like chat with you. But your job as a founder is to build a great business. And if you're building a great business, where fundamentally you know you're growing, you're generating revenue, and you're doing well, everyone is the capital allocator. An investor would like to invest in your company. So you should instead be spending time focusing on building instead of like building relationships with investors. And you should go out in the market to raise your Series B or Series C round uh, and Series A when, you know, when you're ready. You should not like just, you know, try to like give people updates uh, out there. The, the kind of caveat here is that this is an understanding that you already have raised some round. People already recognize your company. So you have some relationship in the market. If you're starting with zero, then, you know, you should definitely be building relationships. But you already have, like, you know, a seed round or, like, you know, some capital in. You have some great investment or cap table. That's more than enough for you to get to the next stage. You should not be making an effort now. To like, you know, let's make 50 relationships or 100 relationships. You know, the 10, 15 relationships you have investors would, would be more than sufficient to get you success but the bigger impact would be having success as a company uh, and getting your numbers up and metrics up fascinating it definitely is your job to build a great business and uh, in turn the the fundraising requirements will uh, 
will will fall into place. So I, th- I think that I think that's really really um, a very spiky point of view, Hassan. Thanks for thanks for sharing that one. <laughs> well, listen, we have come to the end now, but this has been a lot of fun to do. And listen, really glad we got the opportunity, my friend. Yeah, no, well, thank you so much, Alex, for having me. This is just a super fun. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation and hope, hopefully it was useful for your listeners as well.